Our gracious Heavenly Father, O Lord, as we just sang this song, Jesus, there's none like you. We really want to mean that in our hearts, Lord. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for your Son. He is the reason why we are here. We know that, Father, apart from him, we have no hope. We have no hope of forgiveness. We have no hope of removing our guilt for our sins, of the punishment and the penalty for our sins being removed. Lord, it's all about Christ and living for Christ. Thank you for the privilege and the opportunity that we've had to remember your Son. And Lord, this morning as we open up your Word, Father, we pray that you would give us soft and tender hearts, eager hearts to listen and to hear these words so as to appropriate them to our lives. Father, we remember this morning those who are hurting amongst us, those who are hurting physically with physical sicknesses and physical trials. Father, may you encourage and comfort them this morning. Remind them of the fact that you will never leave them nor forsake them in Christ. Father, I pray for those who are suffering emotionally and spiritually, that, Father, they would experience the weakness and that they would experience these trials, but not so as to despair and not have any hope, but to run to the cross of Christ and be reminded of the comfort that you give at the foot of the cross. Lord, uplift your people this morning. Encourage our hearts through your word. Challenge us. Convict us of our sin, not so that we would despair and live hopelessly, but so that we would run to Christ, our all-sufficiency. Christ is enough. Father, we pray for our country this morning and for our world. We pray for the persecuted church all over the world, for our brethren who this weekend in various capacities and even with various limitations, especially in some other countries, are not able to worship physically in the way that we are right now. Father, thank you for that. It is a grace of yours. We do not deserve it. But we pray for our brethren that you would continue by your Spirit to allow them to endure and to persevere in the Christian life. Father, we pray for those who are suffering persecution at the hands of tyrannical governments or, Lord, other false religions that, Lord, are inflicting pain upon them. Lord, be with them. Remind them of your awesome presence. Lord, be be their encouragement by your Spirit and through your Word. Father, may we, Lord, even as we are given a little bit more freedom right now to worship this way. May we never see this as something to be self-entitled about, but may we be full of gratitude for what you are allowing us to be able to do. We thank you for the ability to be in in a building, Father, with the temperature being right for us to be able to worship and clean water and all of these things that we take for granted so often. Lord, we don't deserve anything, and yet you are a God of blessing and a God who grants his favor upon us. You grant favor upon the good and the evil. Father, thank you for being a good, loving, kind, gracious God. Be with us this morning as we learn from your wording what you would have to say to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 We'll open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah 66 verses 1 and 2 is our passage that we're going to complete this morning. We started looking at this last Sunday morning, if you remember. And if you're able to stand with me, please stand for the reading of God's word. Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. 
Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. The Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. One way to think about Christianity and what Christianity, biblical Christianity, is all about is that Christianity, biblically speaking, really is about changed relationships. Changed relationships. At the top of that list, of course, is our relationship with God that has now changed. When you repented of your sins, as God worked in your heart and you repented, you turned from your sins and you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, your relationship with God changed from enemy of God to now child of God. And so this vertical relationship has now been, through Christ, restored so that you have been forgiven of your sins, you have been rescued from hell and condemnation, you have become now no longer God's enemies, but now God's children. Then there's your relationship to your sin that has changed. When you repented of your sins and you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, your sin at one point that separated you from God was now placed upon Christ and His righteousness was placed upon you. That's what we call double imputation. Our sin was placed upon Jesus and His righteousness was placed upon us. And so now in relation to your sin, you and I as Christians now, as those in Christ, are no longer those who live for our sin, who love our sin, but now we hate our sin and we long to live for Jesus by God's grace. And there's your relationship to the world that has now changed. Not the world, the physical known world, but the world system of ideas, the evil world system that we live in. Whereas at at one point you were shaped prior to Christ by the world and you patterned your life after the world, you no longer live for the world. You no longer love the world. You no longer um, adopt the worldly ideologies around you. But now, you are one who wants to reach the world for Christ. You no longer look at the world with with longing eyes, befriending the world, wondering what you're missing out on. But now you seek to be separated from the world, and yet you love the world as Christ loved the world, and you desire to preach Jesus and share Christ so that the world, people in the world might come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And there's your relationship to the church. Your relationship to the church has changed. Whereas before Jesus, you ran towards independence and you ran towards isolation and you were comfortable living there. You separated yourself from even believers and Christians. Now in Christ, you run toward Christian fellowship with your brothers and sisters. And you now in Christ understand that accountability is the friend of integrity. That you need other believers around you, other Christians to encourage you and vice versa. But there's one more relationship that I want us to consider this morning. And that is our relationship to God's Word. Our relationship to God's Word. It's this relationship to God's Word that is at the heart of this last phrase that we didn't get an opportunity to look at last week in verse 2. That God looks upon with favor on the person who trembles at my Word. Who trembles at my Word. 
We've already seen in our passage that the kind of heart that God delights in, the kind of heart that God finds, looks with favor upon, is the heart or the person filled with reverential awe for Him. That the higher our view of God, that now as Christians, as those who have been delivered from the penalty and the punishment of our sin, we do have a responsibility to cultivate, in accordance with God's Word, a high view of God. And then, it is this reverential awe for Him as we behold God on the pages of His Word that then secondly leads us to cultivate a heart that is characterized by humility before God. Humility before God. Humility is the appropriate response to who God is. And what we learned last week is that the more that we truly see God as He is, the more that we will respond with humility. First of all, we will respond, if you remember, with humble thinking. Humble thinking in relation to ourselves. And the heart of this is that we will see ourselves rightly, not in comparison to other people and how we stack up in comparison to others, but in how we compare to the majesty and the glory of God. And then we are brought very low, aren't we? We have a right view of ourselves. Sort of like going to one of the great wonders of the world, if you will. So like the, the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls, or a few years ago, I got an opportunity to go to Peru, to the Andes Mountains, and, and see and tour Machu Picchu with a group of donors, with the organization that I was previously with. Wow, what an amazing sight that was. And when you go to places like that, to great, beautiful places of nature that God has created, you don't walk away feeling better about yourself, right? You don't. You walk away with a feeling, with just a great sense of wonder and awe for these places. And then in turn, of the, you realize that how small you are in comparison. And how oftentimes we tend to view ourselves as so much greater than we really are. How much more with God? How much more with God? The more that we behold the glory and the immensity and the greatness of God on the pages of His Word, and even through our experience as we live life here in this world, beloved, the more that we are driven to humble thinking concerning ourselves, having a proper assessment of ourselves. Then secondly, this beholding of God leads then to humble contrition in relation to our sin. Where yes, even though we're believers... And we have, been, we have been delivered and rescued from the penalty and the power of sin by the cross of Jesus Christ. We daily live mindful of our brokenness and of our unworthiness before Almighty God, right? Before our Heavenly Father. And this sense of unworthiness then drives us to our knees to realize how desperately we are in need of God's daily sustaining grace. A heart of humble contrition. Seen this way then. Repentance and confession is not simply something we did at the moment of our new birth. But repentance and confession is now a lifestyle that we live out and flesh out as children of God whose, yes, whose souls are secure because of the cross of Christ. And there's nothing that we bring to that. And yet now out of a heart of love and gratitude, we daily confess our sin and we repent of our sins and be reminded of our forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. Amen? But finally this morning, we want to see that last little part of verse 2 and be reminded that the kind of heart that God delights in, that God looks with favor upon, is a heart 
of humble submission. A heart of humble submission in relation to God's Word. Look at verse 2. But to this one, says Yahweh, I will look to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. In one sense, we could say that this whole description of the heart of humility is describing the heart of every Christian. Because there's no such thing as a believer, a Christian who doesn't submit, albeit imperfectly in weakness, to the word of God and has this kind of humble heart. Described in verse 2. But on the other hand, as you've experienced the Christian life, as you've experienced being a child of God, isn't it true, beloved, that as Christians even, it's so easy to become cold and callous and indifferent and neglectful, even to grow hardened toward the Word of God? This is why the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 4 instructs believers to encourage one another so that none of us, none of you grow hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Why does he say that to believers? Because even as Christians, our hearts can become hardened if we are not cultivating hearts of humility before the truth of God's word, responding in obedient faith to God's word. As C.H. Spurgeon once said in one of his sermons, quote, The same sun which melts wax hardens clay. And the same gospel which melts some people to repentance hardens others in their sins. How true that is. There's a hardening effect that can take place when we do not respond to God's word in humble submission, in brokenness before God, in appropriate and loving obedience. And so, all that to say, we need to pay close attention to what God says here in verse 2. What kind of person does God delight in? What kind of person does God look with favor upon? What kind of person does God delight in dwelling in? It's the person who trembles at God's word. The same instruction is repeated in verse 5, if you notice. Hear the word of the Lord. You who tremble at his word. We might ask, who are the tremblers here? Answer, those who pay close attention to what God says. And as you read the book of Isaiah, again and again and again, as the prophet speaks as God's spokesman, he continues to call the people, the rebel southern kingdom, and at the core of that, the city of Jerusalem, to listen to the word of God. To tremble at the word of God so as to appropriate what he is commanding them to. So as to give heed to his warnings and his caution to the southern kingdom. Over and over again, the prophet Isaiah warns the people about this. We have other warnings in scripture like that. Proverbs 13, 13. The one who despises the word will be in debt to it. But the one who fears the commandment will be rewarded. To honor and respect God's word is to give heed to the word of God. Now, as we consider what trembling at God's word means, I think it's important to think about what it does not mean. What it does not mean. First of all, I want you to know that it does not mean or refer to slavish fear. A sort of slavish fear. The type of fear that obeys for fear of punishment. For fear of a master punishing you as his slave. 
1 John chapter 4 and verse 18 says this, There is no fear in love, speaking of this slavish type of fear, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. It's not a slavish type of trembling here. It's also, excuse me, not a duty-driven type of fear or trembling. The type of fear that obeys out of mere obligation. That is duty-driven because I have to obey God. Because I have to tremble at God's Word. Or else. It's not that type of fear or trembling. Our obedience is loving obedience, isn't it? Our obedience is grateful obedience. It's obedience out of a heart of gratitude and love and appreciation and admiration for all that God has done for us in Christ Jesus by His grace, His unmerited, undeserved favor and kindness, beloved. It's loving obedience. It's grateful obedience. This is why I love the the Heidelberg Catechism. One of the great Protestant confessions. Pull it up sometime if you have never read that Heidelberg Catechism. It's formulated in questions and answers and basically designed to teach Christian doctrine. And really, you could categorize the, the Heidelberg Catechism in three primary categories. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. We are guilty before a holy and righteous Creator God because of our sin and because of our rebellion. We deserve hell and condemnation. There's nothing that we can do to save ourselves, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. There's nothing that we could do to remove the guilt and the wrath of God pointed in our direction, says the the catechism. But then there is grace. Unmerited, undeserved favor found in the person and the work of King Jesus. The great sin bearer, the great suffering servant who took upon himself our sins... And God poured His wrath on the cross upon Him for our sins. Jesus, who came and lived the perfect, sinless, spotless life that we could never live, who died a sinner's death on the cross, though blameless and innocent, and rose from the dead three days later, conquering sin and death. There is grace for those who repent of their sins and put their faith in this precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace. And then, there's gratitude. Now, as those who are in Christ, who've turned from your sins and you put your faith in Jesus, you live the Christian life now out of a heart of gratitude and love. It's loving obedience and grateful obedience. Isn't that amazing, beloved? There's no guilt in life anymore. No fear in death, right? Why? Because of Christ. Christ nailed our sins to the cross and our guilt to the cross. So that we could live with joy and and peace and encouragement and comfort. Even in the midst of trials, live well under our trials. All because of King Jesus. Guilt, grace, gratitude. So it's not a duty-driven type of trembling or fear. It's grateful obedience and loving obedience. Finally, I told you last week that this is not fear or trembling. As in a terror or dread of God's coming wrath or judgment. In other words, we obey because we don't want to be punished by God in an eternal sense. Instead, it's reverential awe toward our Heavenly Father. We fear His disapproval. We want to be well-pleasing to Him. But we fear His fatherly, loving discipline. This is the type of fear a 
a son, a biological son or, or adopted son has of his father on the human level. Where that little son or daughter is convinced of, of his or her father's love for them. That there's nothing that they could ever do to change that. No matter how naughty they are, their parent loves them. But they don't want to bring displeasure to their parents. They don't want to bring the loving discipline of that parent. Well, in the perfect sense, this is the case with our Heavenly Father. Who will lovingly discipline us when we need it. It's that type of fear. Reverential awe. In the context of this kind of loving discipline by God. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 5 instructs believers as sons or daughters, we might say, not to regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son or daughter whom he receives. So this is not speaking of slavish fear, duty driven fear or fear of God's punitive wrath or punishment. And so the question is, What does it mean to tremble at God's word? What does it mean to to exercise humble submission as children of God? I want you to consider five things here. First, I think it means to have a posture of reverence for God's word. It means to have a posture of reverence for God's word. From our text, we've already seen how reverence is the appropriate response of the humble to the majesty and the immensity and the greatness of God. And if we revere God himself, doesn't it follow that we will honor and respect what he says? We will revere and honor and value what God says. Isn't that what we teach our kids growing up? Son, little Timmy, little Susie, when that adult speaks to you the next time or when mommy and daddy speak to you, look at their eyes. Look at their eyes and listen to what they're saying. Why do we do that? Because if they respect that person, they will honor and respect and value what that person or their parent is telling them, right? What that person says. If that's true on the human level, how much more on the theological level with regards to our relationship with our Heavenly Father? If we revere God Himself as a person in His glory and His majesty and His immensity then we will value and treasure and delight in what He says, right? His Word will mean everything to us. So how much more with God? Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29 says this, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. And so much of what the writer of Hebrews has been talking about in the letter of Hebrews is is the importance of listening to the word of God. Of not succumbing to the old way of doing things, but now in Christ, listening to God. And in particular, focusing on the person and the work of Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 17 says this, Honor all people Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. That's an instruction to to Christians. To revere and value and honor God, to hold God in high regard, to fear him with reverential awe, which surely involves honoring what he says, right? Honoring his word. 
This honor is why Paul instructs the young pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 13. And this is why we do what we do at Calvary, beloved, even on Sunday mornings, as far as the liturgy, the order of service. He writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to what God says, in other words, to exhortation and teaching. Why is God's Word, the Bible, Holy Scripture, so important to the life of the church? It's because it's the very Word of the living God. That's sharper than any two-edged sword. That pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. And is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The Word of God, what does it do? It searches the soul, doesn't it? And so we read it privately and publicly. We teach it privately and publicly. We preach it publicly. And we all sit under the preaching and the teaching of God's Word. The little ones do in, in our children's ministry and the youth and, and some at our college and career and here in, on Sunday morning worship services and in your fellowship groups and in your midweek small groups, men's and women. It's all centered on the Word of God. Why? Because when the Word of God speaks, who speaks? God speaks. So to be devoted to the Word of God this way is to reverence God's Word. It's the great, it was the great reformer, Martin Luther, who I once read, confessed to those closest to him that often upon getting behind a pulpit, that his knees would, would begin to knock together when he stood up to preach. That he was so, so trembling when he got up to the pulpit oftentimes because he didn't want to be unfaithful in any way, shape, or form to God's Word. Boy, we need a greater dose of that sense of trembling today toward the Word of God, don't we, beloved? Because we see the opposite in our culture. My sons have often asked me over the years, Dad, after all of these years, do you still get nervous when you preach? You know what my answer is? Yes. Yes. And by and large, not because of the fear of people, because I know you guys love me. Everything that I say, I know you love it. Oh, man. But really, it's not so much because of fear of people. It's because of the fear of God. And those brothers who get up here or, or teach their, fe their fellowship groups, pastors and elders and other gifted teachers in our church will tell you the same thing. It is a fearful thing and an awesome thing to be able to open this book and to be able to say, thus saith the Lord. And you better make sure that if you're going to say that, that's what the Bible says. Once there was a young preacher who strutted up to the pulpit with his head erect and chest thrown out, expecting to wow the congregation. And he then humbly walked back down off the pulpit after the sermon completely bombed. What happened? He asked his senior minister. The wise minister answered him, Son, if you would have gone up to the pulpit the way you came down, you would have been able to come down the way you went up. Whew, that's good, isn't it? Brings to mind what Jesus often said in various ways. He who humbles himself will be exalted, but he who exalts himself will be what? Humbled. When we read or listen to God's word, there's an appropriate reverential response that we should cultivate in our hearts and lives, beloved. You know why? 
Because God's word is a matter of life or death. It contains a message where heaven and hell hang in the balance. Every time you share the gospel with somebody, every time in the workplace or in your home or in your neighborhood or with your acquaintances, or any time a gospel preacher gets up and proclaims the word of God, the clear, unadulterated word of God, the pure gospel, heaven or hell hang in the balance. Think about that. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14 with me. Turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. I love this text where Paul is speaking of their ministry as apostles, their physical example before others and living life before others, but also the proclamation of the Word of God, which came with the apostles. 2 Corinthians 2.14 But thanks be to God, he writes to the Corinthians, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of men. Paul specifically is speaking there about their, their testimony among people as apostles, but also they were preachers of God's word and the gospel. And as they extended the, the proclamation of the word of God and the gospel to other people, there were some beloved, and that's the case today, who will receive it and pass from life to life to eternal life. And there will be those who will pass from death, spiritual death, to eternal spiritual death. Boy, that should evoke in us reverence for the Word of God, shouldn't it? Even as children of God. Commenting on the importance of reverencing the Word of God, J.C. Ryle writes this, quote, Think about it, friend. Why wouldn't one who understands that the authority of God is behind His Word not be struck with awe and reverence upon hearing that Word preached? If that Word is the power of God unto salvation, Romans 1.16 is sharper than any two-edged sword, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, will not return unto God void, Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 and 11, and will someday judge us, John chapter 12, verse 48, should we not be struck with awe and reverence as we read it or hear it preached unto us, end quote. Boy, that's so true, isn't it? If the Word of God, if the Bible, Holy Scripture... When we open it and we read it, it's God's very word. We should be filled with awe, beloved, with reverence toward the word of God. I want to ask you this morning, personally, do you have an attitude or a posture of reverence toward the word of God? Do you have a high regard for Holy Scripture? Do you value, do you honor, do you respect God's word. You ask, Pastor Kempis, how do I gauge my level of reverence for God's word? How do I know? How do I triage whether I respond in reverence to the word of God? Well, let me ask you just something practical. What do you do with Saturday nights in preparation for Sunday mornings? This is one application of this. 
How, what do your Saturday nights look like as you know that this is the one main event, the unique event where we all come together to read Scripture, to sing Scripture, to fellowship together in application of Scripture, to hear the Word of God preached and to apply the Word of God? What do your Saturday nights look like? Do you go to bed at a good time so that you're able to get up at a good time on Sunday morning? Or Saturday night, just a freebie night, I can go... I can go to bed as, lo- as, as late as I want. You then get up on Sunday morning and you do everything you can do to get here on time on Sunday morning to prepare your heart, to be ready not only to just sit in the pew, but also to be actively engaged, attentive, listening to what God would have to say to you personally. And let me ask you this. Do you show reverence to the Word of God by personalizing the message that is preached? Do you personalize it? Where you see it as an arrow aimed in your direction. This is what God would have to say to me. As a proverbial person, right? And I've often sinned in this way. Admission. Boy, I wish that such and such a person were here to hear that one. Man, I wish, you know what, I'm going to send them the link to this message. They really need to hear this, baby, right? <laughs> or this particular podcast. Or sometimes maybe you shoot out, a, you text a verse to a group of people. Not so much because you're encouraged by the verse, but maybe you want somebody in there to hear that, right? All of us can sin in that way. You personalize the message. Or you have the attitude on Sunday morning This is a message from God to me. God is speaking to me directly, not the other person, not my spouse, not my kids, not my parents, not my friends, not my co me directly. That's how we show reverence to the Word of God. I ask you, young people, young people, boy, I was reading some stuff this week. Never have we had a generation, at least from what many, many people, Many people say, whether you want to hear this or not, young people, never have we had a generation that's now in the greatest danger of forsaking the word of God from a human perspective. Never. A generation more timid, not solidified in their beliefs and their convictions about the word of God, cowardly, who doesn't want to share Christ with people, who doesn't know what you believe. You say, Pastor, why are you picking on us? Because I love you and I care about you. Because your parents love you and care about you. Because your pastors and elders love you and care about you. That's why. I think about my own kids. I think about then my grandkids, Lord willing. And I think about those of you who are grandparents and you feel some of this, right? We don't regret the fact that God is allowing these things because we know He's sovereign. God has placed our children here for such a time as this. He doesn't make mistakes, right? But on the other hand, the human responsibility on our part in the power of the Spirit by the grace of God is that you young people would know what you believe in. You would make faith your own and defend the truth for the glory of Christ right now. So young people, do you respect and honor God's word? Do you value holy scripture? Because there's nothing sacred anymore, it seems, with this generation of young people. Everything is mundane. We make light of everything. Everything is funny. 
You know how many pulpits all over the country want more jokes in the pulpit? This is not a time for joking around haphazardly or in a sinful way from pulpits. Heaven and hell right in the balance. And even as I've told you before, my theory is, not inspired, is that if there's a place closest to hell right now, it is California here in L.A. where God has put us here to yank people out of hell, beloved. This is not a time for joking around and messing around. It isn't. Does it mean we have joy in the Lord? Absolutely. Does it mean we have the peace that surpasses all understanding and comprehension? Absolutely. We experience the the benefits of our salvation and we certainly want to exude the joy of the Lord. That's different than sinful joking around, making everything mundane that is sacred. I'm talking about something different than the joy of the Lord, the joy that Christ produces so that we make the gospel attractive to other people. I'm talking about something far different. Some of you who work in the secular realm understand this with youth, right, brother? That this is a time when young people don't take the word of God seriously anymore. And even those who have grown up in the church don't know what they believe and they don't defend it in the face of fierce opposition in our culture. Young people, you need to honor and revere the word of God. And part of that is knowing what you believe and getting into the biblical text yourself and meditating and memorizing it and learning apologetics, how to defend the truth. That's why I'm so thankful for so many of you here, even in our college and career, who are teaching our young people apologetics right now. That's awesome. Honor and revere the word of God, young people. Respect God's word. Spurgeon comments, quote, tremble at the searching power of God's word. He further asks, do you never come into this place and sit down in the pew and say, Lord, grant that thy word may search me and try me that I may not be deceived? Certain people must always have sweets and comforts, but God's wise children do not wish for these in undue measure. Daily bread we ask for, not daily sugar, end quote. What's Spurgeon saying? We have a tendency to only ever want messages which tickle the ears. But we don't want messages that are heart-searching. Sermons that call us to repentance and to put our trust and daily dependence upon the cross of Christ as we turn from our sins. and We continue to become, by the grace of God and in the power of the Spirit, more like Jesus. And so to tremble, to live in humble submission, is to revere God's Word. Second, It means to delight in God's word. It means to delight in God's word. The prophet Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, says in Jeremiah 15, 16, your words were found, and listen to this, and I ate them. What? And your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. That's great imagery, isn't it? Jeremiah is saying like a delicious meal, God's word was delightful to my spiritual palates. Is the word of God delightful to you? Surely that's part of trembling before the word of God. In Ezekiel chapter 3, God says to his prophet Ezekiel, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll, speaking of the word of God, and go speak to the house of Israel. And then Ezekiel says, So I opened my mouth and he fed me this scroll. He said to me, Son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body with this scroll which I am giving you. Then I ate it, and it was sweet as honey to my mouth. 
Well, I, like, I love honey even in my coffee, right? Some of us love coffee in our tea or whatever else you drink. Nothing worse than no sweetness in something, right? Just can't stand that. I love honey. Do you view the Word of God in that kind of delightful way? That the Word of God is sweet and has honey to your mouth? Exuberantly, the psalmist says in Psalm 119.103, How sweet are your words to my taste, as to my palate. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. In Psalm 19.10, They, God's word, are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. As you do your daily Bible reading, beloved, are you delighting in God's word? Are you delighting in the word of God? Psalm 34, verse 8, Taste, taste and see that the Lord is good. You see, it's not just enough to read it. We must memorize it and meditate upon the Word of God and live it and delight in it. These days of COVID, there's an ongoing joke between my wife, Andrea, and I, and hopefully you find it a little bit funny, okay? Because I know there's a lot of seriousness right now with regards to that, and, and we get that. So she had COVID a few weeks ago, as most of you know, and up until recently, she hasn't been able to taste and smell. Now she's starting to taste and smell more which is pretty typical of post-COVID symptoms, as I hear, and as people have shared. So the ongoing joke is whenever over the last few weeks we're having the same meal or food and we're enjoying that, she says to me, oh, I wish I could taste this. This seems like it tastes so good. And I learned better, but initially this was my response. Oh, honey, it is so good. (laughs) I know that I'm wicked. I know. Some of you ladies are hating me right now. And she looked at me like, you are so, so mean, right? So now my answer is, honey, it's disgusting. This is nasty. You probably don't. You know. But one of her longings is, I can't wait to be able to taste again. Because it takes, takes all the fun out of it, right? Part of eating and drinking is being able to taste the food and taste that delicious drink. It takes all the fun out of it when you can't, you're not able to do that. So it is with God's word. So it is with God's word. Our hearts should cry out daily, Oh, Father, help me not only to read your word, but to taste and see that you indeed are good, to enjoy your word because it reveals who you are and your majesty and glory and the glories of the gospel and the person and the work of your son. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You say, but Pastor Kempis, what if I don't desire it? What if I don't desire the word, if I don't delight in it this way? This could be for a number of reasons. Maybe you are partaking of too much junk food. Too much junk food, exposing your eyes and ears to other things that take away an appetite for the word of God. Maybe you're coddling known unrepentant sin in your life. And you need to confess that to the Lord and repent of that and be reminded of forgiveness and renewal in Christ. Maybe you're living in broken, unreconciled relationships. Be they in your home or in the church or with others. Maybe you don't approach God's word with a heart of faith, as we're going to see in a few minutes. Hebrews eleven six says that he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Maybe you don't come to God in faith, trusting in his word. So reverence for God's word, delighting in God's word, 
Third, it means to obey God's word. To have reverence for the word of God and to show or exercise humble submission to the word of God means that you obey God's word, that you do what he says. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 4, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And boy, did he live this, didn't he? During his humanity, our Lord Jesus lived in the power of the Spirit and in obedience to the Word of God. He offered to God a perfect obedience. He fulfilled all of God's righteous commands. That's what we call the active obedience of Christ. His perfect, sinless life and adherence to all of God's commands now, on, now put upon us when we trust in Him. He lived in perfect obedience to His heavenly Father. Hebrews 5.8, Jesus learned obedience from the things he suffered. Beloved, can I ask you, do you obey the word of God? Do you do what God says? Oh, some people love to read a lot of scripture and read a lot of books that point to scripture. You love to hear a lot of sermons, which is good. And you should do that. You should listen to the greatest preachers all over the world, dead guys and live guys. You should do that, but then go full circle and appropriate the word of God to your life. Apply what the word of God calls you to. Because many people with all of their head knowledge, which is needed, it doesn't seem to make a difference to the way they think about God, to the way they process their trials, or with the way that they treat other people. And there is application for all of those areas. We must give heed to the word of God. James chapter 1 and verse 22 says this, But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. And then James goes on to talk about this hearer-only person and likens that hearer-only person who doesn't apply the word to the type of person who wakes up in the morning, if you will, looks at his face or her face in the mirror, sees the mess that they are, and they walk away doing nothing, taking no action to fix what's the mess that's there. That's kind of silly, isn't it? I mean, how many of you woke up this morning, you guys, so that I don't offend our ladies, but you guys looked at the mess that you are in the mirror and did nothing about it, took no action to comb your hair, to clean your face. Some of you teens say, well, that was kind of me, you know, a little bit. It's silly. It's foolish, isn't it? To look at yourself in the mirror, the whole purpose of why you're doing it is so that you could take, take action. And James says, such is the person who doesn't apply the word of God. You look at the mirror of the word and see yourself for who you are in the light of who God is, and you do nothing about it. And that is sin. Do you obey the word of God? You say, well, not really, but I do love Jesus. I do love Jesus. Get off my back. I love Jesus. You can't defend against that. Well, Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And later on in John chapter 14, verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come and make our abode with him. Couldn't it be more crystal clear? Don't say you love Jesus and you are a follower of Jesus and you do not do what he says. Are we going to be perfect? Absolutely not. Are we going to be absolutely spotless and blameless as Jesus? Absolutely not. Otherwise, there wouldn't have been a reason for Jesus to come and be that perfect, spotless substitute on our behalf. Absolutely. 
but as a habitual pattern of your life. Do you obey the Lord? Do you desire to obey Him? Because that shows that you are a true disciple, albeit imperfect follower. Do you tremble at God's Word when you read His Word? You seek to ask key questions about application when you read God's Word, such as these. Are there thoughts or ideas about God here in God's Word that I need to believe or appropriate to my life? Are there ways of thinking about God here that I need to repent of? That's a diagnostic question to ask yourself. Are there hidden sins to repent of before God and others, according to this passage or in this message? What wrong motives or attitudes or priorities do I need to change or repent of or confess before the Lord and ask for new attitudes and new priorities and new motives in the light of this? Are there words or actions to confess and turn from? Are there aspects of God's word that I'm avoiding or refusing to obey here, such as serving or giving to the Lord or being involved in some kind of a small group so that I would be accountable to others and vice versa? All of these are heart diagnostic questions, beloved, that we should be asking that relate to obedience to the Word of God. What's the ultimate motivation for obedience? Gratitude and love for Him. Amen? Gratitude and love for Him. For this is the love of God, 1 John 5, 3, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Why? They're not heavy, oppressive loads, His commandments, because they are given to us as His children for His glory and for our good and well-being. Amen? He's a loving, heavenly Father. Here's Spurgeon on this issue of obedience and reverence. Quote, He who knows the Lord properly also trembles with fear lest he should break God's law. He sees what a perfect law it is and how spiritual it is and how it overlaps with all of human life. And the man cries, it is high. I cannot attain to it. Oh, my God, help me, I pray. He views the law with reverence. He admires the word with a sacred fear. He trembles at God's word, not because he dislikes it, but because he cannot bear to be so far off from compliance with its righteous demands. He sees the law fulfilled in Christ, and there is his peace, but yet the peace is mingled with deepest awe. But, oh, one says, if he trembles like that, it shows he does not know the love of God. No, on the contrary, it shows that he does know it. Have you heard of the boy whose father was extremely fond of him? He was asked by some other boys to go and rob an orchard with them, but he said, no, I will not go. They replied, your father will not scold you nor beat you. You may fall. You may safely come. To this he answered, what? Do you think because my father loves me that therefore I will, I will grieve him? No, I love him and I love to do what he wishes, to do, wishes me to do. Because he loves me, I fear to vex him. That is like the child of God. The more he knows about God's love, the more he trembles at the thought of offending the Most High. End quote. Good stuff. So helpful, isn't it? What does it mean to tremble? It means reverence, delight, obedience toward God's word. Fourth, it means to trust in God's word. It means to trust in God's word. Proverbs thirteen thirteen, The one who despises the word will be in debt to it, but the one who fears the commandment will be rewarded. The sense there in Proverbs thirteen thirteen is the one who reverences the commandment so as to obey them, so as to take God at his word. 
Oftentimes, beloved, even this past year, such a difficult year. Have you and I not leaned upon our own understanding rather than trusted in God? Do you know that reverencing God, being in awe of Him, one of the ways that we show that, that we manifest that, is by trusting in His promises revealed in His Word. Do you believe that if God said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, that He means it? We teach our children the same thing as parents, don't we? Do what I say, and if you do that, I promise you, or I give you my word that there will be this reward, right? And we want to cultivate in our children trust. How much more do we show that we trust God when we obey his word and we trust him even in the midst of our trials and our temptations? Do you trust God? I got a test of this the other day when my little girl went in for her eye surgery. My little girl, Chloe. It was all fine and dandy for me, truth be told, the whole time as we did all the preparation at the hospital for her surgery until the moment of surgery when they carted her away, three or four different doctors, and they took her away. And at that moment, as they carted her away, I had the choice. Am I going to worry, fret, or be anxious to operate or to live atheistically right now as if God doesn't exist? Or am I going to trust God? Am I going to put my theology to practice now in the arena of life and tests and all of that? You know this because many of you have gone through even greater trials and tests, beloved. You know that. Psalm 46, verse 10, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. In Proverbs 3, verse 5, you know the verse. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. See, those who fear the Lord exercise trust in the Lord. Psalm 37, verse 5, Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in Him, and He will do it. Do you humbly submit to the Word of God by leaning upon God's promises, trusting in Him even in the greatest difficulties of life, financial strain, unbelieving family members, so forth, physical trials, spiritual turmoil in your life? Do you trust God? Do you lean upon His Word in those times? One final one that is really where all of this begins. To exercise humble submission means, finally, to embrace God's Word in Christ. To embrace God's Word in Christ. Ultimately, put in context with the rest of the canon of scripture and the rest of the word of God there is no favor from God for anyone who rejects his son the living word right that was the whole point of Isaiah 53 for Isaiah where we have that wonderful amazing chapter about the suffering servant the Messiah whom we now know to be Jesus in in Isaiah 53 who came as a suffering servant to bear our sins, to take upon himself our griefs and our sorrows, so that for those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ can be forgiven and reconciled to God, our Maker. That was the whole point of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 
teaches us that there is no salvation for Israel or anyone except in King Jesus. And why is that important, beloved? Because there are so many people in our culture who say they believe in God, even people who say, well, I'm a God-fearing person, I like the Bible, I believe in the Bible, but they're either indifferent to Jesus Christ, God's ultimate self-revelation, or they reject Jesus Christ altogether. And thus, if we are to tremble at God's word and humbly submit to the word of God, then we will embrace the one to whom the word ultimately points to. His name is Jesus, the word come in human flesh, right? John chapter 1, verse 14. The word dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. What's his name? Jesus. Jesus Christ. To tremble at God's word then from the outset is to Repent of your sins and put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to remind you this morning, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you have not been reconciled to God through faith in Jesus. There is no salvation in anyone else. There's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which people can be saved and rescued from their sins. What's his name? Jesus Christ. Exclusively. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Jesus Christ. Can I encourage you and exhort you and plead with you if you don't know God as your heavenly father, but you are his enemy, repent of your sins, turn from your sins today and put your faith in Jesus Christ, the good news. And there's forgiveness at the foot of the cross. And there's reconciliation to your maker. And there's eternal life in the person and the work of Jesus. And so you see, when it's all said and done, Isn't this ultimately here in Isaiah 66 a picture of salvation here? Of repentance? Because later on in the New Testament, listen to this, it's now Christians, believers, who house God the Holy Spirit, right? By faith in Christ. To Christians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19, listen to what Paul says. Or do you not know, Christians... That your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. What a beautiful truth, beloved. That it's now as Christians, under the new covenant, that we, by faith in Jesus, house God the Holy Spirit. And so how do we glorify God? By being filled with reverence before Him, and by walking in loving humility. Amen? Beginning with turning from our sins and putting our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you. Thank you for the reminder of your awesome transcendence, that you are greater than us and far above us, that nothing can contain you, and yet that you, now under the new covenant in Christ Jesus, have been pleased to dwell in those who put their faith And your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Wow, that is amazing. Lord, help us as believers to cultivate this kind of heart, a heart of reverential awe toward you. We would never take you for granted, that we would never, Lord, play with sin, even as believers, because we know that you will discipline us as our Heavenly Father for your glory and for our good. And help us, Lord, to walk in humility, 
Help us to be people who are broken, daily being reminded of, an, of our unworthiness, not so that we would despair, Father, not so that we would be paralyzed by our sin and our weaknesses, but so that we would be daily dependent upon your sustaining grace. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.